0: All right, church family, that introduces and kicks off our new sermon series in 2 Timothy. So take your Bibles uh, and turn with me to that book. We have spent the summer in the Old Testament, and now we're going to spend the first eight weeks of this semester in the new. Uh, So we're going to walk right through the book of 2 Timothy, uh, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1 here in just a few moments. Uh, But before we get there, I want to pick up on what Chris was walking us through there, this idea that the way we do life is changing. As we talked about last week, the way we shop, uh, and for many of us, the way we go to work. uh, Obviously, we're dealing right now, for those of us who are parents, with the way we go to school. A lot of time and intentionality, trying to figure that out. But another thing is changing as well, and that is the way we, quote, do church And so one of the things that's interesting to think about is just where we have come uh, in our lifetime for many of us. I was born in 1975, and I recently picked up an article that talked about how in the mid-70s, we begin to see several shifts in the way that we think about doing church. And so I want to put up some pictures that walk us through this. Uh, Here is a picture of kind of a traditional First Baptist Church. I'm just curious, no matter the denomination, how many of you grew up in kind of a traditional type denominational church setting? Yeah, it looks like a little over half of us, same First Service. Y'all, I was on the cradle roll. Anybody remember that? That's where they would enroll you in Sunday school before you were even born. Uh, And so that's the way that I grew up, First Baptist Church of Salem, Illinois. And during that era in American history, generally you had your denominational tribe. And as you moved communities or as you were looking for a church, you showed up. And if you were Baptist, you look for the Baptist Church, Methodist, you look for the Methodist Church, Pentecostal, Bapticostal, whatever it was, right? You looked for the church in town with that name on it. Well, over time, of course, that began to change because there was a lot of denominational baggage. People had been wounded or hurt by different churches. So a lot of churches went to what we call the community church model in the 1980s. And so the idea here was that the emphasis was just on being non-denominational. And so they really wanted to focus on meeting the needs of the people in the community. Uh, Sometimes the the label seeker sensitive was applied. uh, And so I always called non-denominational churches Baptist churches with a cool website, right? Right because that's basically what they were. Almost all of them were Baptist in theology. Uh, but the emphasis, again, uh, well-intended, but it was on reaching people in the community. Then that gave way to the megachurch movement. Uh, and so what happened was a lot of these community churches began to grow. And so the emphasis in evangelicalism in North America really started to focus on these churches that were 1,000 or 2,000 or bigger in membership. Uh, a lot of their pastors wrote books. You went to all of the conferences, uh, Willow Creek Community Church up in the Chicago area, Saddleback Community Church out in California, uh, two of the more well-known churches that begin to kind of popularize this type of doing church. And eventually churches began to recognize that they couldn't just keep building bigger and bigger buildings, but they wanted to continue to reach people. So that led us into the multi-site church movement uh, in the past 20 years. And of course, we are a part of that movement, right? We open up multiple locations. We sometimes repurpose or revitalize churches. Sometimes we launch a campus, but The idea is is that you connect, you have a network of church families of congregations that work together to contextualize ministry into different communities. Not everybody wants to get in their car and drive 30 minutes or 45 minutes to a megachurch. And so we'll bring the church to you. And so this is a quick snapshot of all of our campuses. But what's interesting is, In the past several years, there is a new movement, and you might call it a Back to the Future movement, that we have noticed as leaders has been taking place. As our nation, as our communities become more and more stratified, As people have these little niches and the internet, right, propagates those because they find each other online. And as these niches begin to emerge, we have seen a reemergement of what might be called the house church movement or the cell church movement. And so there you see a couple of pictures. One is of a wet, very Western looking kind of a living room setting, right, with somebody open teaching the Bible. The other picture I put up there intentionally, it's a picture of a church in China. Because people in those contexts, in places like West Africa and the Middle East and in China, for decades, the church has been meeting in small groups because they are unable to gather either because of persecution or zoning or resources for whatever in large groups. And so when you begin to think about this, just stop for a minute and it's a little inside baseball for you. I know, but we are a Baptist church that cares about the community that has over 12,000 members that meets at eight locations that recognizes that this is the future of the church because we are going to have to be equipped to go into our neighborhoods, to be able to reach those people that we work with, to be able to connect with the other students in school around us. The future of the church is not in just asking people to come to our big events and programs, but instead us being equipped as disciple makers and disciple multipliers to go to them. Now what we do as the church gathered, that won't go away. So don't totally freak out on me, right? But the reality is, as we are seeing this more and more, that we, every single one of us in the church, are not called to rely upon a few pastors or a few ministry professionals to carry out the ministry. Instead, we are all called to be obedient to the great commission Jesus gave us, which said, go and do what? Make disciples. True disciples multiply themselves. True disciples make disciples of others. It's a call to total engagement across the church. And the good news for us in this pandemic, right, is that I believe the Holy Spirit is accelerating this movement. Suddenly, it's difficult to meet in large groups. And so what are we having to do? Find ways to meet in our homes, around park benches, around fire pits. We're having to find ways to disciple our children and our grandchildren in their homes. And the good news again for us is not only do we can we learn from brothers and sisters in the two-thirds world about how this is done, but we can look back to the early church. Because when we read about churches gathering in the New Testament, you have to remember that the vast majority of those were 30 people or less. They were more what we would call house churches. And so as we lean into 2 Timothy, we're going to see, the, the relationship that existed between Paul and Timothy and how that was important because Paul knew he needed to pour into Timothy as a disciple maker if the church was going to be healthy and if the church was going to carry on. And I want each and every one of you to know that if you are in Christ, then you are called like Timothy to be a disciple maker. You are called like Paul to pour into and invest in the lives of others. Disciples who multiply disciples know the joy That comes from life-giving biblical community. That there is a joy beyond the circumstances of our culture or our nation or the situation or the moment. There is a joy that happens when you know, I have been faithful to not only know Christ and pursue him, but to tell others about him and to see disciples made who are going to carry on the torch of faith from one generation to the next. So that's where we dive in to this series. Stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 today. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, My dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, And now I am convinced is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that no matter how the times may change, you remain unchanging And your wisdom to us remains clear. God, you tell us that life is about a relationship with you. And out of that vertical relationship, God, comes our ability to relate to others. And your spirit enables us to do that in powerful ways. So God, thank you for putting on display for us, capturing for us, the relationship that Paul had with Timothy. And God, I pray in a similar way, We would recognize and respond to the rhythms of grace and the relationships that you have placed around us that help forge us in life-giving biblical community. So God, open our ears and our hearts and our lives to what it means to be disciples who multiply disciples in this place today. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, I warned the first service, I warn you too, my watch for some reason is losing time. So I think that's God's way of telling me we're to go long today, amen, right? So buckle up. Here we go. You're getting all of my, my all of my research this week. No, I'm teasing. We've got a clock in the back so you can breathe easy. All right, let me give you a little context as we start into 2 Timothy. Much like we did with the prophets, let's orient ourselves and where we're at in the storyline of the Bible. 2 Timothy is often called Paul's last will and testament. It is very likely the last letter that he ever wrote. And so Paul is now writing near the end of his life. It's about AD 67. Severe persecution his broken out against the church. Now, we know that a lot of Paul's letters were written, right, quote, in prison, but many of them were written under what we would call more of a house arrest. No, this is prison. He is awaiting his execution, as Christian history tells us, church history tells us, in Rome's Mamertine prison. Some of you have been there to Rome. You can see it to this day. That's what the picture is. Uh, From your seat, you can probably tell that it is uh, just blocks of stone. It is literally under the ground. Uh, I don't know if you can see this from your seat, but there's a little shaft of light at the top of the picture. That's how, in ancient times, you got in and out of the cell. There were no ladders or steps. They literally dropped you into this hole. It was a dungeon. And this is where Paul is writing this from. So when you're like, but Jay, the title of the sermon is a disciple knows joy. How in the world could you find joy in a situation like this, right? A lot of us think being quarantined at our homes is rough. You see, Paul understood that joy was not dependent upon circumstances. And we'll see all kinds of ways in this letter that his walk with Christ kept him strong. He was honest about how difficult this moment was for him. So let's be clear about that. But at the same time, we know that Paul was able to write and use words like joy because he believed that for him to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. His heart belonged to Christ, and whether Christ saw fit to leave him on this earth or call him home, Paul was at peace. And so he writes with this theme. This is a very personal message. It's why we chose this book. It's intensely personal, maybe the most personal letter in the entire New Testament, to encourage Timothy to endure for the gospel during a difficult time. Timothy was trying to pastor a difficult church at Ephesus. Paul, his mentor, was on trial, and so it seemed like it was dark days for the church. As persecution was breaking out right and left. The letter, the first Timothy, is focused more on the church. Second Timothy focuses more on the pastor, the person of Timothy that Paul wanted to pour into. And that's why it's such a good lens, a helpful lens, for us to see the intensity and the closeness of their relationship. So today we're going to see that we are shaped as disciples by God's grace in three ways through what Paul writes to Timothy. Way number one is this. Disciples who multiply disciples are shaped by spiritual mentors. Disciples who multiply disciples, they're shaped by people who have chosen to invest in their life. Paul chose to invest in Timothy. And often we kind of skip over the salutation or the greeting, the first couple of sentences of a letter in the New Testament because it's kind of standard fare. But if you look closely, you'll learn some things. We'll learn some things. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Here's what I don't want you to miss, right? Is that Paul's life was rooted in the gospel. And Paul recognized that he had been called as an apostle, that his testimony was powerful and unique. Many of you will remember the story of Paul. It's woven throughout the New Testament. But originally he was a guy named Saul. He was raised a Jew, a Jew among Jews. He studied under some of the leading rabbis in Jerusalem. And then when this movement called Christianity began to break out, these followers of Jesus Paul tells us that he was zealous to persecute them. He was present acts tells us at the stoning of Stephen. Uh, the words that Luke uses in acts says that Paul ravaged the church like a wolf hunting down Christians and persecuting them. Paul by our terminology today would be a terrorist. That's what he was doing. Hunting and killing Christians. And yet what happened? Jesus encountered him on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, my body, believers in Jesus? And from that moment forward, everything in Saul's life changed, including his name, right, that became Paul. Jesus told him that he was going to be his chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, right, that he was an apostle. He wasn't one of the original twelve. But he was called in a unique way for a unique ministry. And so when Paul calls himself an apostle, he is remembering his testimony and his story. And he never got over that. And you shouldn't either. But I say that as we start this series, because as we begin to talk about being disciple makers, you can't give away something that you don't have. In other words, you can't be a disciple maker unless you are a disciple of Jesus. So notice that Paul... Always, always went back to his salvation. He always went back to his calling. He was always amazed that God would call him out of death and into life, as we sang about. That he would call him out of that grave to serve him and to make him known throughout the ancient world. Paul never got over that and said it was by God's will. Paul never could have planned it. He never could have mapped out his life in that way. Instead, that was God's plan and his purpose for Paul. And Paul was grateful to get to be a part of it. He says, by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, it's easy for us, right, to just hear phrases like that. For the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Where is Paul? Awaiting his execution. So he's holding on to the promise of life as he is awaiting his death. That's powerful. And so it reminds us that Paul held on to every one of the promises of God. He understood the blessing that he gives Timothy at the beginning of this letter. Grace, mercy, and peace. Remember, biblically, peace is not just the absence of conflict, right? It is the fullness of life. May those things be to you, Timothy, my dearly loved son, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then it's typical for Paul that after his introduction, he moves into thanksgiving. And what does he thank God for? Well, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. How many of us sitting there today have a clear conscience? Paul did. And that's an incredible thing to have, right? To be at peace for him to realize the end physically for me is probably near. But I can look back and in Paul's own words, I have fought the good fight. Was Paul perfect? No. Was he blameless? Absolutely not, right? But he had been faithful to do what Jesus called him to do. You know, one of our favorite songs to sing around here is In Christ Alone. How many of you love that song, right? Because, yeah, right, it's just it's the gospel song. And you guys, to use the words of Spinal Tap, turn it to 11, like when we sing that song. I'm sitting here in the front row, and I can hear you just belt it out. And I love this line in this song, and I think Paul would resonate with it. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, right? No guilt in life. No fear in death. And that's not my power, the song says, right? But it's the power of Christ in me. And that's what Paul recognized was at work through him. His conscience was clear, he said, because I served as my ancestors did, which is an interesting thing to say with someone from Paul's background. In other words, Paul didn't see his Christianity as betraying his Judaism, his Jewishness. Instead, he saw it as the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament about a Messiah to come. And so Paul saw himself, right? He was able to see what God was doing. And he said, I thank my God who I serve with a clear conscience when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Ah, the gift to have somebody. Who loves you and prays for you night and day. You see, this was key to Paul. Think about where he's at. He's in a dungeon. So he looks around, right? What can I do? Right? Well, I can continue to study the word. Later we'll see where he wants his parchments to come, right? His his notes, his Bible study notes. What can I do here? Well, I can write letters and I can encourage. What else can I do? I can pray night and day. And so Paul might have been locked in this cell, in this dungeon, right? But his spirit was free in Christ. And so Paul made the most of that moment and that time. And you think about us. When you think about the situations that we find ourselves in. And sometimes we feel like we're helpless. We've been, again, quarantined in our homes. What can we do? You can pray. You can encourage You can bless others. That's what Paul did. So we see Paul holding on to the promise of life. We see this peaceful frame of mind despite his circumstances. And we see his personal love for Timothy. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Is there somebody in your life who's a mentor, an encouragement to you, that when you see them, man, it fills you with joy? We all need those kind of relationships. You see, Paul believed in Timothy and in his ministry. Timothy believed in Paul and how God was working in and through him. And we need those kind of relationships, the spiritual mentorships in our lives. And part of the reason we struggle sometimes is because we don't spend enough time with those kind of people, the kind of people who put life into us. You know who they are. There are people who suck life out of you, right? People that we're called to minister to and to give our lives away for. But you also have to be around people who replenish you, who encourage you, who build you up in the faith. That's the kind of person that Paul was for Timothy and Timothy was for Paul. This week, I had the privilege of going to lunch with one of my mentors who was my mentor 20 plus years ago. When I was a senior in college, I applied to be a part of a summer ministry program I had heard about and I really, really wanted to be a part of, but I had never got to to participate in before. And so I applied, I drove down to Tennessee, I interviewed with this guy, I called him the intimidator, right, because he would ask questions and then I'd answer and then it would just be silent and I was like, did I say the wrong thing, Right. I mean, this guy I just looked up to and I respected big time, but this guy took a chance in 1997 and he hired a kid from the cornfields of Southern Illinois to go coach basketball and baseball and be the campus pastor or a pastor for our team in inner city, Baltimore, Maryland. I had no idea what inner city ministry was like. That summer stretched me in all kinds of ways, but he invested in me, saw something in me in some ways that I don't know that I even saw in myself at that time. And so this week we were able to sit down and we were able to reminisce. You know, you do that with those people who have known you over the course of your life. And so we were able to catch up, compare notes, all those kind of things. I was able to look him in the eye and I was able to tell him, hey, man, I want you to know that, man, that opportunity grew my faith so much. It stretched me but all kinds of ways that summer. And you know, from there, I met a pastor from North Alabama, and that was my first full-time ministry job. And from there, I met a pastor from Brentwood, Tennessee, and that's how I ended up here. And now I got to walk him around our campus, talk about what God's doing here. And I looked him and I said, man, do you realize that by pouring into me, it set off this chain reaction of events in my life, and here's what God's doing today. I just wanted to encourage him with that. That's what those spiritual mentors do in our life. And if you have that person in your life this week, Write them a card. Pick up the phone and call them or text them. Would you tell them what a blessing they've been to you because they need to hear that because it's a tough time to be in ministry. You remember what I told you he runs and to this day runs a sports ministry. Do you know what camp ministry was like this summer? Non-existence. And so they're hemorrhaging, all kinds of money. Had to send all of the campers and staffers home for the summer. You know how difficult that is? So as we're sitting there, we're talking about what's happening. So you know what he did on the side? I love this about him. He picked up a job driving Uber. Guess what? He shared the gospel with a lot of lost people because they were in his back seat this summer. You see, and that encouraged and blessed me to see how a guy, right, who has been at the top of his game in ministry, has had an influential ministry all over this country and really all over the world. They had international teams. How instead of just being in despair and discouraged, well, I can't do anything for God this summer, like we've done every other summer for the past 40 or 50 years. No, he saw it as an opportunity for ministry and just started sharing the gospel with people as he drives over, Man, what a blessing to me. That kind of person, right, we need in our lives. We all need a Paul who models for us what God is doing, who encourages us in the faith. Those kind of guys not only are our mentors, but they also help us to see, number two, our spiritual heritage. Disciples who multiply disciples are shaped by their spiritual heritage. They can look at our life and they can point out where God's grace has been at work. Look at verse 5. Paul says, I recall your sincere faith. Your authentic faith is what that word means. It literally means unhypocritical. Paul and Timothy had spent much time together, so much time together that Paul knew the depth of Timothy's faith. And he knew the foundation of that faith started when he was very young. That first lived in your grandmother Lois, in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. We know from the book of Acts that Timothy's father was a Gentile, that he was Greek. His mother, his grandmother, Jews, who converted likely under Paul's preaching and ministry at Lystra in Acts 14, Acts 16. And so what happened was Timothy had been raised in a home, and we find a little later in 2 Timothy, right, in chapter 3, that it says that he was taught The Old Testament from birth, from the time he was little. And that had created this biblical foundation in Timothy's life. And so when his mother and his grandmother came to faith, Timothy did too at some point. And so that foundation Paul saw as a blessing. So speaking of things that God is doing in a pandemic, we have spent a lot of time, haven't we, parents and grandparents, thinking about education for our kids, What are we going to do at school? Are we going to go online? Are we going to go remote? Are we going to send them to school? Are we going to look at private school? We've spent a lot of time thinking in a pandemic, right, when things are disrupted, what we're doing about their education. Have we thought about what we're doing in their spiritual formation? Have you realized that this is an opportunity? We've been talking about this in in the church for years. But this is an opportunity for you to be a Lois and a Eunice, right, in the life of your child and your grandchild, that because it's difficult, right, to meet in large groups, a lot of our church activities and events have been decentralized. It was incredible this summer to see so many of you take advantage of VBS Go, Camp Plus, to see you guys jump on board with opportunities to drive spiritual conversations in the home. Many of us in the church have been a part of what we call the family equipping movement for years, trying to figure out how we elevate the spiritual involvement of parents and grandparents in the lives of their kids and grandkids. Well, now here's our shots. And so what an opportunity you have this fall to say, just like we're gonna be intentional about rethinking our priorities and time. How about we think about what we're doing spiritually in the home? And our next gen team is gonna to continue to provide resources. Think about that image that Chris put on the screen, right? Of him teaching his boys how to tie a tie. By the way, Chris, I don't know where you're at. I saw you a minute ago. There you are, right? You said you have a suit. You said you have a tie, but I noticed you're wearing a T-shirt, right? So the next question is, do you own a white dress shirt? Just being sure right? So, you know, in that moment, but he's teaching his boys, right? That's intentionality. And in the same way, we have these moments and this opportunity. That's a great word picture for us to tell and show our kids and our grandkids what it means to be a person of what? Authentic faith is what Paul calls it. Sincere faith. So don't overlook this moment, parents and grandparents, but take advantage of the chance to show how spiritual heritage means something, how it's important. And then there's a third means of God's grace that Paul sees at work in the life of Timothy. And it's this. Disciples who multiply disciples are shaped by the Spirit and the gifts. You see, a mentor knows someone well. And if you put together a composite of Timothy's personality throughout the pages of the New Testament, you'll recognize that Timothy was not Paul. Timothy, we get the picture, was more timid than Paul. Timothy, we know, had a weak stomach, meaning he probably had a pretty nervous disposition. We know from 1 Timothy 4, right, he was young, much younger than Paul. And so all of these things combined, right, meant that Timothy was not a carbon copy of Paul. And so what Paul reminds him of in verse 6, and church family, here's my favorite word, therefore, anytime we see what's therefore, we have to ask what that therefore is. Therefore, therefore, So Paul sums this up by saying, God has given me to you as a mentor. You have a spiritual foundation, but don't merely rely on yourself. Trust in the Spirit. I want to remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Where do our gifts come from? They come from the Spirit. And this word rekindle is in the present tense. In other words, you need to always keep it alive. You see, Paul knew that for Timothy, he needed more heat, right? One of the things that he was probably prone to was sliding into complacency. And so he calls him here to rekindle the gift of God, and he reminds him of his ordination that is you you through the laying on of my hands. And here's a verse. It was our VBS theme verse a few years ago. It's one many of you have memorized. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. That is a good word for this moment for us. So if there are fears in your life, you need to acknowledge them. Okay, this is a fear. But now I need to go back to the root of that fear because it doesn't come from the living God. Fear does not come from the Spirit of God. And so where does that fear come from, right? And you have to recognize that the Spirit that God has placed in you is greater than the Spirit of the one who is in the world. Because God's given us not a spirit of fear, but one of what? Of power and of love and of sound judgment. Do we need some sound judgment, level-headedness in our world today, church? Amen, right? Our world's going nuts. Why? Because they're trying to figure it out on their own. But Paul reminds Timothy, you have the Spirit. And the Spirit has put inside of you the gifts that are needed for the building up of the church, for the work that I have called you to do. And in the same way, I would look at every single one of you and say, as Timothys, right? As Timothys, God has put inside of you the gifts that he needs in order to build up the work that he's calling you to do among your neighbors and among the nations, God has given his church everything he needs. The question is, will we respond? Will we be faithful and obedient to exercise those gifts? Spiritual gifts are like muscles. I know some of you like to work out, right? The more you exercise them, the stronger they become. And so Paul is always reminding Timothy, hey man, this isn't in your own strength, but it's in the power of the living God through his spirit that you're able to carry out this ministry. So spiritual mentorship, spiritual fellowship excuse me, foundation, the spirit, and the gifts all working together in Timothy's life leads us to some takeaway questions as we begin this series today. Three questions that I want you to ask of yourself. Question number one is this. These come from the spiritual challenge questions that we use as a church, by the way. How are you being discipled? Question number one. Or you could translate that. Who is your Paul? Who is pouring into you? Do you have a spiritual mentor? Can you name them by name? Can you pick up the phone and call them this week or text them or email them or say, hey, I want to get together with you because I need your influence in my life? And if you don't have one, that's one of the things I love about this congregation. Look around. Look around this room. I mean, really, like, look around. I love seeing the different ages and stages. I love the levels of spiritual maturity and experience. I love our intergenerational church. Because I know there's some amazingly gifted and experienced people in this room. And so if you need someone to guide and shepherd and mentor you, look around. You've paid attention to the people who are mature in their faith, the people who aren't perfect, but they're growing. The people who are a few steps ahead of you on the journey. And maybe it's time to pick up the phone and say, hey, I I need a relationship with someone who's going to bless me, who's going to pour into my life. Would you be that source of encouragement in my life? And I know there are people out there who would want to be that. So do you know who your Paul is? Question number two, who are you discipling? Who is your Timothy? You see, it's a two-way street. The gospel that flows to us needs to flow through us. We don't want to be ponds that become stagnant, right? Instead, we want to be living water. We want that water flowing out of us to others. And so it was important for Paul to have a Timothy. Howard Hendricks was the beloved Bible teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he used to say, every Christian needs three relationships. They need a Paul. They need a Barnabas, a friend who's alongside of them as an encourager, and you need a Timothy. You need somebody that you are pouring into as well. How many of you in here like to golf? I'm curious. All right, a few of you. All right, yeah, that's what I thought. Not a ton of golfers in the room. How many of you at least know a little bit about golf? All right, so yeah, like me, you go out every now and then and, you know, you're reminded of why you're so terrible at golf and why you don't play very often. That's me, all right? Let me use a golfing illustration to describe this. Uh, Across the column there, 2 Timothy 2, 2. What you have heard from me, Paul says, in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, Paul knew he needed to invest in Timothy, and Timothy needed to invest in others. This kind of ministry doesn't make headlines, but it builds the church of Jesus Christ. Here's how it's like a golf game right? When you get up to the tee box and you're trying to hit the ball down the fairway, you use a big club called a driver, right? You want to hit the ball as far as you can. As you get out there on the fairway, hopefully, unless you're like me, you're in the weeds, right? Or in the trees. Then you use your irons because you're trying to get up to the green. But when you get on the green, you have to know how to use your putter. And the professionals, the good golfers will tell you that you drive for show, but you putt for dough. Some of you know, right? Because that's the key to lowering your score and being able to win and be good at the game of golf. It's not how you drive, it's how you arrive, some of them will say as well. And so let me compare that to ministry. In a lot of our churches, we have preaching ministries, right? That's like the driver. We get to see the crowd. There's a lot of energy, you know, that kind of thing. There's a lot of churches that have what I would call iron ministry. That's our classrooms, our Bible studies, our groups by which things are taught. But... The putting, the personal, the one-on-one discipleship. That's where disciples are made and multiplied at that grassroots level. And that's where a lot of us miss it. And so what Paul is reminding Timothy and what we need to be reminded of, right? It's not just how you drive, it's how you arrive. The reality for us is that we need those one-on-one relationships By which we can grow. And then those, right, grow into healthy groups. Healthy groups grow into healthy churches. Healthy churches impact the world for the kingdom of God. And so this leads us to question three. When and where are you experiencing life-giving biblical community? Out of those smaller relationships should come groups. And it's important that we're in groups. And if you're sitting there saying today, I'm not sure, I'm fuzzy on who my Paul is. I'm fuzzy on who my Timothy is. One of the best things you can do is say, this fall, I'm going to find a way to get in a group. Now, that group might be on Zoom. That group might meet in person. Well, that's one of the opportunities we've been handed this fall is to kind of restart groups in all kinds of ways. But as I told you in the introduction, that's where the future of the church is going. Because there's certain people that God has placed you next to who are never going to walk in the doors of this facility. We're equipping you to go to them. There are certain people who are never going to be reached by programs and events. That's what we've relied on in the past 40 or 50 years in the church. No, it's going to be you going to them. So you need to be in a group in which you're going to be built up and encouraged. I'm not going to unpack this today, I just want to show it to you, but we have been hard at work refining our strategy, we call it DXD, Disciples Multiplying Groups, and each three parts of this pinwheel, of this propeller diagram, talk about the gospel conversations that we need to have, the groups that we need to be in so we can grow and care and equip for ministry, and the going that we need to do. All of these move and work together, but it begins with relationships. Much of what God did in the New Testament, He did because people were first connected to Him and then like Paul and Timothy, connected to each other. So if you don't know where to start, let me make this as practical as I can. Text. The uh, DXD, right, to six two I'll put it on the screen for you. Send a text right now, and it will send you a link back once you uh, tell us which campus you are a part of. So put an SH for Station Hill, and it will send you to a landing page that outlines many of the groups that we have available this fall. Or you can email our uh, care and groups minister, Juan, at Juan uh, J JuanJSally at StationHillChurch.com. Uh, so earlier this week, I made this slide and then it occurred to me, I better give Juan a heads up. So uh, I called Juan to say, your email box inbox is about to blow up. And so he graciously agreed to, uh, to let me share his email address with you guys. Email me, email one of us. The point is this, we want you to experience the joy of life-giving biblical community. We need a Paul. We need a Timothy. God uses these things to shape us for the journey to understand how much we're loved like Paul loved Timothy and to understand what it means and to be encouraged to persevere as we are sent. Bow your heads with me this morning as we come to this time of response. And in the 60 to 90 seconds of prayer time we're about to give you, I want you to ask yourself those questions. Who is your Paul? Who is pouring into you right now and discipling you? And maybe the Holy Spirit is going to nudge you to say, pick up the phone, make the call. Reach out to someone that you see and respect. And ask if they would journey with you in this new chapter and season of life. Question number two, who is your Timothy? Maybe already God's been placing someone in your path. And you know you need to pour into and you need to disciple and invest in them. They might be in your own home, parents. They might be in your own family, grandparents. But whoever it is, would you say, I am going to share with that person what God has shared with me? And then last but certainly not least, when and where are you experiencing that life-giving biblical community that gives back to you? Let's pray together this morning that we will be a congregation that nurtures out of the riches of the gospel, deep, meaningful and life-giving relationships, like the one that Paul and Timothy shared with each other. Let's pray together this morning.